A reading for the book of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zeruzebel, son of Shethiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was in seminary just a few years ago, we had to write summaries for every one of the books of the Old Testament. The book of the prophet Haggai, which we just heard read from Jen, was honestly a book that I had never even heard of in my entire life up to that point. And when I found out that it was only two really short chapters long, I figured that summarizing it would be a piece of cake, and I got a little bit excited because I'm lazy. (laughs) Unfortunately for me, it turned out that while this book may be short, It's a book that's really pretty critically important to the overall story of the Old Testament and the history of the Israelites. So I ended up getting a really bad grade on my little summary, but I did learn that there's a lot to learn from this little book about who we are as people and who God is in the midst of our up and down lives. So here's the gist of the book of Haggai. About 600 years before Jesus was born, the great empire of Babylon sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and sent the Jewish people, the Israelites, out into exile. But about 50 years later, the Babylonians were overthrown themselves by the Persians, and the Persians allowed some of the Israelites to return back home to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple and to rebuild their lives again. And here's where Haggai comes in. God gives him a message to deliver to the Israelites who are in the midst of trying to put their lives back together. Some of them are going about this in different ways. Some of them are going about it by way of building new homes for their families, moving on from God in a sort of way and focusing on their immediate families and the well-being there, moving on and projecting their future health and happiness onto their homes for their families and their new and improved situations, while others are focused on rebuilding the old temple, longing for the days of old and trying to reconcile themselves back again into God's graces. But the new temple that they're in the midst of building looks nothing like 
the mighty old one built by Solomon about 500 years ago. So what I really love about this passage is the way that it locates and describes so much of what it means to be a person who feels anxious, to be a person who feels dissatisfied, discouraged, and disappointed about the way things are, about the way they've been, and how try as we might, we don't seem to be able to do anything about that on our own. And who hasn't felt like this, this discouragement about the, the present day? We've all felt like that. And in response to these feelings, who hasn't looked back with a sigh at simpler, better times, or continued to look forward and said to yourself, if I could get there, or if we could just get to this place, then fill in the blank, then all of your problems will go away. This passage tells us that we're not alone in feeling this way, that the human heart seems to have some universal chamber of angst within itself. The irony is that when we look to the future, when we look to the past for deliverance from what ails us, in a way we're still actually looking back or forward at ourselves. We're looking at a past or future version of ourselves, thinking that if we could only become that, then our problems would be solved. But the more we look within, the more that we look at ourselves for freedom, the more we end up just fanning the flame of all of these anxieties. But Haggai delivers this message from God. I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give prosperity. God reminds us that he is the one who's in control. And the splendor of freedom and deliverance from bondage that we're all longing for, that's something that's going to come from God. It's not going to come from us. We can escape for a brief moment out of our present situations with a longing gaze. Uh, Consider how great things once were or consider how great things certainly will become in the future. But more often than not, both of these things, both of these ways of escaping simply aren't true. Because life was full of sadness and sin and loneliness two years ago, 200 and 2,000 years ago. Life was and will be again a difficult and maddening existence. And it will be again because when people are the topic of discussion after all, history and human nature and certainly the Bible show us that they're pretty clear on the fact that people will always find a way to screw things up to make things complicated, to make things sad, to make things divisive. We are who we are. We're a people who always have and always will be desperately in need of a Savior. In William Faulkner's great novel, The Sound and the Fury, he writes about the tragic Compson family. Two of the main characters, brothers Quentin and Jason, provide Powerful examples, I think, of this escapist mindset or mentality. With Quentin so fixated on the honor and the sins of the past that he's just stuck and he ends up deciding that he literally can't live in the modern world anymore. And he tragically takes his own life. And then you have Jason, the other brother, whose gaze is so set off into the future 
on the profiting off the modern world, that he neglects the well-being of those around him in order to do things like literally invest in cotton futures. But the Compson's servant, Dilsey, is another story. She seems to be the only person capable of remaining emotionally present in the family. And in the closing chapter of this great novel, we catch a glimpse of why that's the case. On Easter Sunday, she takes some of the Compsons with her to church, where they hear a sermon climaxing with images of Jesus up on the cross, language of the resurrection and the blood of the Lamb, and the preacher saying things like, these are the only things that will save you. As she walks out of the church, Dilsey begins to weep, and her friend Franny tells her that she better stop crying because people are starting to look at her and they're about to pass by some white folks. But Dilsey just lifts her head up with tears of joy rolling down her face as she says this, I've seen the first and the last. I've seen the beginning and now I see the ending. There was never a time and there will never be a time when anything else but the resurrection and the blood of the Lamb will be what saves us. So what is it about the past and what is it about the future that attract us so much? I think it's that they both begin with an acknowledgement that things are at the present moment not the way that they should be or could be. And this is not a bad thing to observe or feel. Because while it might not be a fun or a happy thing to feel or to think, It is true. Things aren't perfect. Our world is cracked and broken in so many ways. Our relationships certainly are. And this is a better thing to observe this, to know this, and to think this than to just stick our head in the sand. But things get a little messy after we think this and observe this, and then we begin to long for some sort of progress into the future or some sort of distant past that will save us. Because in both cases, our hope is placed in ourselves and our own ability to progress towards some level of perfection never seen or our ability to regroup and reinstate that much preferred way of life long gone. We realize that we aren't who we want to be when we think this way. We want to be somebody else. The podcast Snap Judgment had an episode a year or two ago that was called 12 Pageant Queens, 10,000 Snakes. It's about Sweetwater, Texas, a small town in West Texas that holds this annual Sweetwater Rattlesnake Roundup. And it is sort of exactly what it sounds like. There's a short documentary about this, and if you're at all like me and you hate snakes, Please don't watch that documentary. It's awful. Um, It really gave me a nightmare, and I just couldn't not recommend it anymore. Um, I think that works. Um, You know what I'm saying. So, but there is this podcast which I think you should listen to. So, in this podcast, it talks about this rattlesnake roundup, where they literally round up thousands and thousands of rattlesnakes to kill and to to eat and to celebrate in all sorts of weird ways like having a beauty pageant where the, the teenage girl who is crowned the champion or the winner is crowned Miss Snake Charmer. 
Some of the teenage girls participating in this pageant, they look the part. Like, there are beautiful and wealthy cheerleaders. There are a few girls whose mothers won the pageant themselves a decade or two ago. But there's also a girl named Cheyenne Hamilton, a teenager who is participating. And she's interviewed, and she describes herself by saying, I'm not the cutest, I'm not the smartest, and I'm definitely not the sweetest. Cheyenne comes from a really poor family. She hadn't to, uh, to borrow clothes and to buy her dress at Goodwill to participate in the competition. And she looks like and literally was a power lifter for a while, she says. So while her against all odds mentality or mindset is really refreshing when you're listening to this and it's almost inspiring, you can't help but wonder while you're listening to it why in the world she would put herself through the pain of this pageant of participating in it, where the whole point is literally to look the part of a beauty queen. Until she tells the interviewer exactly why it is or why it was that she entered into the pageant. She says, I want to do something different. I want to be something. I want to prove to everybody else that I'm actually, I guess, somebody. Cheyenne's life is really hard. Separated or abandoned by her parents at a young age, she had a history of depression, Uh, she became suicidal, and she ended up in a mental health facility. So she was entering this beauty pageant in an attempt to find or to create or to start a new life for herself, or that's how she puts it. She said, I just wanted to start over, I just wanted to turn over a new leaf or whatever that phrase is. I'm working on my 12th second chance, she says. I want to impress my parents because I always wanted to hear from them, I'm proud of you. In the end, once the results are in, and unsurprisingly, Cheyenne sadly tells us that she didn't win anything. She didn't win any of the prizes in the contest. And asked how she felt and what she thought about it, she says, referring to the other girls who did win, They know people, but I don't know anybody. They know people, that's why they won, but I I don't know anybody. This is a really sad story. It's a really sad illustration, but I think that it shows us how so many of us, like Cheyenne, want to be someone. We want to be somebody else. But it turns out that all that Cheyenne needed was to know somebody else to win this pageant. Or more specifically, to be known by somebody else. She needed to hear from someone else the promise that at the beginning and at the end, you are mine and I am with you. She needed to hear that I have this and I have you covered. In the gospel, God gives us his promise that he has come to rescue us all from the voices inside of our head telling us that we're nobody, that we're not good enough. In the gospel, God gives us the promise that we don't need to escape to the past, or we don't need to escape into the future, because I am with you, God says, right here in this very moment. 
Just as I delivered the Israelites out of the slavery of Egypt, I've delivered you out of the slavery of sin and death. Through the resurrection and the blood of the Lamb, I've delivered you into this very moment where I've made you somebody. Someone whose slate has been wiped clean. Someone who can look to God and in return hear, I'm proud of you. Our lives begin and they will end with God at our side, giving us His promise of love and His promise of admiration and faithfulness. You don't have to run to the past or to the future because God already has given Himself to you. And because of that today, you are somebody. I'm somebody. We're all somebody. Because we're all the beloved children of God. Amen.